are listening to Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. We're now present at the show, Jesus Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the completion of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, I often begin these shows by saying we're at a very special point in the year, but it's very often true, and we are at a very special point in the year. We are still in the Christmas season. I find it a little bit sad that in many places uh, Christmas seems to have ended, uh, you know, around December 27th or December 28th. Uh, Actually, in the neighborhood where I live, we are now officially required to have taken down all of our outdoor Christmas decorations, for instance, even though we're only in the beginning of January. And um, so I wanted to talk about the Christmas season in reality, which does not end on December 26th, but ends on February 2nd, the Feast of the Presentation. And I wanted to talk about the very Christmas-oriented feasts that take place in between Christmas and February 2nd because there's a sequence of feasts all related to the birth of Jesus and which all speak very profoundly of the relationship, one could say, between Judaism and the sacraments of the Catholic Church that speak very powerfully of the transformation of Judaism into the Catholic Church or, again, seen the other way around, that speak very powerfully of Jesus having come as the Jewish Messiah and having been intrinsically the Jewish Messiah, if I may say so, who just happened to, so to speak, be the, um, I don't want to say the founder of Christianity, but who, who obviously inaugurated Christianity and inaugurated the Catholic Church, but out of his role as the Jewish Messiah. So let me first name the feasts, which is, of course, we had Christmas. I'll pass by that. Then on January 1st, we had the feast, which nowadays is the feast of Mary, the mother of God, but until recently was the feast of the circumcision of Jesus, having come eight days after his birth, which is when the male child, according to Jewish law, would have to be circumcised, and in being circumcised would enter into the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring. So it would be the formal entry into the Jewish covenant eight days after birth by the circumcision, which Jesus underwent on January 1st, being the eighth day after Christmas. And for many centuries, January 1st was celebrated not as the feast of Mary, the mother of God, but as the feast of the circumcision of Jesus. So I will talk about that in a moment after I give this kind of um, overview of the show that I'm going to have today. The next feast, which um, has to do also with the birth of Jesus and the transformation of Judaism into the Catholic Church, is the Epiphany, which uh, traditionally was on January 6th, and now it's on a, a, um, uh, basically it's on, it's moved to a nearby Sunday, but on the calendar until the recent revision, it was always on January 6th. And the Feast of the Epiphany celebrated three events in the life of Jesus. It celebrated the visit of the three magi of the kings to honor Jesus, bringing gifts 
I will talk about that in a moment. And that's the aspect of the Feast of the Epiphany that we're most aware of. But it also celebrated two other uh, theophanies, let's say, re uh, revelations of the divinity of Jesus. Of course, the coming of the kings was a revelation of the divinity of Jesus. But um, on the same day, January 6th, um, and I'll talk about that in a moment too, also was the anniversary of the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, when, of course, the voice came down from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, which was the inauguration of his public ministry, was also a theophany, a revelation of the divinity of Jesus to the world, as was the visit of the three magi. And the third event, which is celebrated on the Feast of the Epiphany on January 6th, is the first public miracle of Jesus, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana, which also tradition holds as having occurred on the anniversary of the um, visit of the three kings, in other words, on January 6th. Um, now, uh, recently, uh, the Western Church, in order to give an opportunity to celebrate those other two events, the uh, miracle of the water and wine at the wedding feast of Cana and the uh, baptism, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, have moved the celebrations of those events to the two Sundays following Epiphany. So uh, this coming Sunday we are going to be celebrating the uh, baptism and the following Sunday the uh, miracle at the wedding feast in Cana. But that is a relatively new change in order to not, um, basically not have the three events kind of disappear into, into uh, one feast day. Um, and then finally, the uh, Christmas season ends with the presentation, which we know, uh, and I will talk about e each of these individually, but we know as uh, the visit of uh, Mary to the temple with the infant Jesus in order to, first of all, undergo the ritual purification after birth and also to present Jesus in the temple and to uh, ransom him back as a male child who opened the womb who was, um, according to Jewish law, consecrated to God as a priest and therefore in order for him to be a member of the family and grow up with a family a, a sort of a, a symbolic ransom was to be given to the temple time permitting i will talk about all of those three aspects separately but of course we see very immediately in the case of the circumcision the jewishness of jesus in the case of the presentation we see very vividly the Jewishness of Jesus as having to be ransomed back in the presentation in the temple, and also the Jewishness of the Blessed Virgin Mary, of course, in, in her following the strictness of Jewish law in, um, in the purification and in the uh, ritual gift to the priests for the purification of the two turtle doves. And in the uh, baptism in the Jordan, of course, we see the inauguration of the Christian sacrament of initiation into the church. So if you, if you think of the circumcision of Jesus, it is when he ritually 
and uh, enter the Jewish covenant. And if you look at the baptism, you can see it as, of course, Jesus didn't enter the Christian covenant in the baptism, but he inaugurated the Christian covenant of the baptism of entry into Christianity through his own baptism. Now, so I just want to give that little overview and, um, uh, and now go to each one separately and kind of uh, flesh out what I said and also just just bring us into those three or four or five actually major events that um, are celebrated in the Christmas season. And again, part of the point of the show is simply to hold us in the in the depth and the richness of the Christian of excuse me of the Christmas season, even though you know the Christmas trees might have been put on the curbside by now. So first of all, let me uh, just read a little bit about the circumcision. First, let me read from the liturgical year by Dom Guéranger, just his inauguration of the, um, his, just the first paragraph of his discussion of the feast day of the circumcision of our Lord on January 1st. Our newborn King and Savior is eight days old today. The star that guides the Magi is advancing towards Bethlehem and five days hence will be standing over the stable where our Jesus is being nursed by his mother. But today the Son of Man is to be circumcised. This first sacrifice of his innocent flesh must honor the eighth day of his mortal life. Today also a name is to be given to him. The name will be Jesus, and it means Savior. So mysteries abound on this day. Let us not pass one of them over, but honor them with all possible devotion and love. Now, in the fact, this is, of course, end of the reading from Dom Guéranger, in the fact of Jesus' circumcision, we see his circumcision was the first blood that Jesus shed for our redemption. It's the first blood of Jesus that was shed upon earth was when the knife cut into him for the circumcision. That first sacrificial um, uh, cutting, that, 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 that first sacrificial giving of blood that Jesus gave for our redemption was in the context of Judaism, it was in the fulfillment of Jewish law, and it was in his entry into the Jewish people through entering the covenant through circumcision. So in this we can in itself see a, a flowing together of Jesus's ultimate sacrifice on the cross, the shedding of his blood for our redemption, for the redemption of all of mankind, and the first shedding of his blood for his entry into the Jewish covenant. So we can see in this a kind of symbolic flowing of the Jewish covenant into the universal covenant of Christianity. The little drop of his blood at his circumcision held up against the ocean of his blood that poured down from the cross at the crucifixion. The drop of his blood at the circumcision, which was um, a fulfillment of the Jewish covenant, and the flood of his blood from the cross, which was the pouring out of the Christian covenant. I'm, I'm just painting, painting a picture. I, I don't know whether that picture was successfully conveyed or not. So let me read a short account 
of the circumcision of Jesus from, again, Anne Catherine Emmerich. This is private revelation. It is not um, attested by the church to be necessarily correct or accurate. However, Anne Catherine Emmerich is now a, I, I know she's at least a blessed, um, so she's at least been raised to the altars as a blessed, if not as a saint. I have to look that up. So it's with a little bit of uh, credibility, let's say, and I find her visions uh, quite compelling and always uh, certainly consonant with both sacred scripture and archaeology and anything else which has been discovered about the time. So turning to Anne Catherine Emmerich's description of the circumcision of our Lord and Savior on the eighth day after his birth. Joseph returned from Bethlehem with five priests and a woman whose services were necessary on such occasions. That's the return to Jerusalem. They brought with them the circumcision stool. Excuse me, I, 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 I'm just going to start over. I'm actually not sure where they were returning from. Joseph returned from Bethlehem with five priests and a woman whose services were necessary on such occasions. They brought with them the circumcision stool and an octagonal slab with all that was needed for the ceremony. The circumcision stone was perhaps two feet in diameter. In the center was a metal plate under which in the hollow of the stone were all kinds of little boxes containing fluids. These boxes were in separate compartments and on one side lay the circumcision knife. The stone was laid upon the little stool which, covered with a cloth, stood on the spot upon which Jesus was born, and the circumcision stool was placed next to it. That evening a feast was spread under the arbor at the entrance of the cave. A crowd of poor people had followed the priests, and during the meal they were continually receiving something both from the priests and from Joseph. The priests went to Mary and the child, spoke with the mother, and took the child in their arms. They also spoke to Joseph about the name the child was to receive. They prayed and sang the greater part of the night and circumcised the child at daybreak. Mary was very much troubled, very anxious about it. After the ceremony, the infant Jesus was swathed with red and white as far as under his little arms, which also were bound and the head wrapped in a cloth. Um, if I, uh, the child was again laid on the octagonal stone and prayers recited over him. If I remember rightly, the angel had already told Joseph that the child should be called Jesus, and I recall that one of the priests did not at first approve the name. Consequently, they continued in prayer. Then I saw a radiant angel standing in front of the priest and holding before him a tablet like the one above the cross, upon which was inscribed the name of Jesus. I saw the priest writing the name on a scrap of parchment. Um, I don't know whether any of the others saw the angel, but deeply moved, he wrote the name under divine inspiration. After that, Joseph received the child back and handed him to the Blessed Virgin, who, with two other women, was standing back in the crib cave. Mary took the weeping child into her arms and quieted it. Uh, there was some more praying and singing, and before the priest departed, 
they took a little breakfast. I saw that all present of the circumcision were good people. The priests were enlightened and later attained salvation. Um, I'm just, I have no comment. I'm just reading this so that we can enter into the experience a little bit. Having been present at circumcisions, I can attest to the fact that it is uh, not comfortable, to say the least, for the infant child, that they do suffer pain and yell and cry. And one can easily imagine, as uh, Anne Catherine Emmerich relates, how Mary was very much troubled and very anxious about it before it happened, and how she very eagerly and lovingly devoted herself to consoling Jesus um, in his agony, let us say, after it happened. Continuing, uh, during the day I saw the nurse again with Mary attending to the child. That night the child was very restless from pain. It cried, and Mary and Joseph tried to soothe it by carrying it up and down the cave. While reflecting upon the mystery of the circumcision, I had a vision. I saw two angels with little tablets in their hands standing under a palm tree. Upon one tra tablet were pictured various instruments of martyrdom, um, which, of which I remember one, a pillar which stood in the middle. On it was a mortar which had two rings. On the other tablet were letters denoting the seasons and years of the church. On the palm tree, and as if growing out of it, was kneeling a virgin, her flowing mantle or veil, for it was fastened over her head, floating around her. In her hands was a heart, upon which I saw a tiny, shining child. I saw an apparition of God the Father draw near to the palm tree, break off a heavy branch that formed a cross, and lay it on the child. Then I saw the child raised, as it were, on the cross, and the virgin reaching the palm branch with the crucified child on it to God the Father, the heart alone remaining in her hand. So we see here in a sense a picture of, um, I'm interpreting Anne Catherine Emmerich's vision, but it's as though it's a picture of, of course, it was at the presentation that the Blessed Virgin Mary offered the infant Jesus to God the Father. Actually, one could say it was at the presentation that the Blessed Virgin Mary ransomed the child Jesus back from God the Father, but I'll talk about that when I get to the presentation. But in this vision, it looks like in the circumcision of Jesus, the Blessed Virgin Mary is already offering Jesus to God the Father and offering the martyrdom of Jesus to come to God the Father. So I think that I will move on at this point from the circumcision in the interest of time, and I will move on to the um, epiphany. Now, last week's show, I, I talked a fair amount about the epiphany. Um, I will uh, introduce the Feast of the Epiphany just a little bit with another short reading from Dom Guerinje's liturgical year. And then I will talk about the second major event that occurred on the Epiphany and which we're about to celebrate on a separate feast 
um, this coming Sunday, which is the baptism of Jesus, which has tremendous connection to Judaism. And there's a tremendous resonance between Judaism and Jesus's baptism, which I will, I hope, make clear in a few minutes. So starting with Dom Guerinjay's um, brief introduction of the Epiphany. The Epiphany is indeed a great feast, and the joy caused us by the birth of our Jesus must be renewed on it. For, as though it were a second Christmas day, it shows our incarnate God in a new light. It leaves us all the sweetness of the dear babe of Bethlehem, who has appeared to us already in love. But to this it adds its own great manifestation of the divinity of our Jesus. At Christmas it was a few shepherds who were invited by the angels to go and recognize the word made flesh. But now at the Epiphany the voice of God himself calls the whole world to adore this Jesus and to hear him. The mystery of the Epiphany brings upon us three magnificent rays of the Son of Justice, our Savior. Um, uh, there were united in one and the same Epiphany three manifestations of Jesus' glory. The mystery of the Magi coming from the east under the guidance of a star and adoring the infant of Bethlehem as the divine king. The mystery of the baptism of Christ who while standing in the waters of the Jordan was proclaimed by the Eternal Father as the Son of God, and thirdly, the mystery of the divine power of this same Jesus when he changed the water into wine at the marriage feast of Cana. Um, let me just use that as a brief introduction to the Feast of the Epiphany. Let me say that there is a beautiful counterpoint between the shepherds coming to the crib on Christmas and the three magi coming at Epiphany because of course the shepherds were the poor of Israel who were shown the newborn Messiah first and at Epiphany the gift of the Messiah was revealed to the Gentile world through the magi who represent the Gentile world. So you could say that it was at the Epiphany that the explosion of salvation, which was affected by the coming of the Jewish Messiah, was made known to the entire Gentile world, who was, of course, the intended eventual recipient of it. Of course, Jesus came for the Gentile world as well as for the Jewish world. But he came first for the Jewish world. Remember that in, during his entire life and ministry, he evangelized and ministered to only Jews, essentially. He came first to the Jews, and then it was spread to the Gentile world. And therefore, we see this already echoed in the immediate aftermath of his birth, where he first comes to the Jewish world, and only after about two weeks is revealed to the Gentile world through the Epiphany. So we see this transformation, so to speak, to come between Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and Jesus as the Savior of the world already foreshadowed or prefigured in the pattern of the revelation first to the shepherds and then to the three magi. Now having said that, let me move. I'm making myself a little bit breathless with this with this uh, sprint through salvation, so to speak, in, during the Christmas season. But let me move to the baptism in the Jordan. Now, 
Some of you may know that uh, several times a year I lead pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And um, one of the very important places we go, uh, of course the most important places are around the death of Jesus, but we also go to the spot in the Jordan River, the actual spot where Jesus was baptized. It used to not be accessible to pilgrimage groups uh, because, frankly, it was mined as a minefield because it was a crossing point during the war with Jordan, but the mines have been cleared and now uh, pilgrimage groups can once again, for about the last five or six years, visit the actual spot in the Jordan, not just a symbolic place some miles away, which used to be used as a spot. But anyway, when I bring groups there, there are always some in the group who are surprised and did not know that that very same spot in the Jordan River, literally the exact same spot in the Jordan River, where John the Baptist was baptizing and where Jesus was baptized, was also the very same spot in the Jordan River where the entire nation of Israel, led by Joshua, first entered the Promised Land after the exodus from Egypt. It is at one and the same place. And not only that, that very same spot in the Jordan River, uh, which is a little bit of a natural ford, in other words, it's, it's a relatively narrow part of the Jordan River, is the exact same spot where Elijah, remember the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, when he was carried up to heaven alive in a flaming chariot, Elijah crossed the Jordan River at that very spot climbed the hill across the Jordan River and ascended into heaven on the flaming chariot. So that place in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized is not only significant because of the baptism of Jesus, but was significant throughout the history of the Jewish people, the history of Israel. Of course, the entire history of the Jewish people was, um, the significance of it was only in the light of the coming of Jesus. Um, but so, so um, it's not a coincidence. Let me try to draw this out a little bit. And uh, after I draw this out, I, I think it'll probably be time to come to the short break we usually have halfway through. And uh, I do, this is a live call-in program, so I do invite calls during the break. And then if there are any, I will uh, immediately turn to the call or calls coming out of the break and then continue with this discussion. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Anyway, back to the spot in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. Now, as I said, it is the place where the Jewish nation entered the Promised Land for the first time after the exodus from Egypt. Why is this an appropriate place for Jesus to have inaugurated Christian baptism? Because remember, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, he wasn't only being baptized as an individual. In fact, he wasn't being baptized as an individual because without, being, you know, without having any sin, there was no need for him to have a baptism of repentance. But he was actually inaugurating the sacrament, introducing the sacrament, the Christian sacrament of baptism. Why was this a place where the Jews entered the Promised Land? Well, bear with me a moment. The entire story of the Jews um, being slaves in Egypt, escaping from the Pharaoh, 
spending 40 years wandering the desert and finally entering the promised land by crossing the Jordan River was simply a picture of the coming of Christianity. The slavery of the Jews to Pharaoh in Egypt was a picture of the slavery of mankind to sin. The Pharaoh was a picture of Satan. The Jews were freed from the power of Pharaoh by passing through the waters of the Red Sea. That was a picture of the Christian being freed from the power of Satan by crossing through the waters of baptism. The Jews wandered through the desert for 40 years on the way to the promised land. That was a picture of the Christian wandering through the desert of this life for 40 or 80 years on the way to the true promised land, which of course is not Israel, it's not the earthly Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem. What sustained the Jews in their wandering through the desert for the 40, those 40 years? It was the miraculous bread from heaven, manna, which of course is a picture of the true miraculous bread from heaven, the Eucharist. Jesus himself in John 6 makes the equation explicit between the manna in the desert and the Eucharist when he says, your forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died nonetheless. I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats of me shall never die. So that equation was made by Jesus himself. And then, of course, the Jews crossing over the Jordan River into the promised land is a picture of the Christian crossing over from the desert of this life to the true promised land, which is heaven. Now, it's baptism that opens the gates of heaven to the Christian, so to speak. It's baptism that is the true passage from this life into eternal life. The passage from this life into the true promised land, heaven, is, is through baptism. And it, the baptism was inaugurated in the very same place where the Jews passed through, passed from their wandering the desert, which was a picture of this life, to the promised land, Israel, which is a picture of heaven. I hope, I hope I've made that clear. It's a very, very, very beautiful typological picture, which is fulfilled by the fact that Jesus had to be, so to speak, baptized in the same spot in the Jordan River where Joshua led the Jews into the Promised Land. And lest we forget, what is Joshua in Hebrew? What's the name Joshua in Hebrew? It's Yeshua. What's the name Jesus in Hebrew? It's Yeshua. Joshua wasn't named Joshua as opposed to the name Jesus. Joshua's name was Yeshua. Jesus' name was Yeshua. Or you could say Joshua's name was Jesus. Or you could say Jesus' name was Joshua. They had one in the same name. Joshua, I'll, I'll call him Yeshua, bringing the Jews into the Promised Land was a picture of Yeshua, Jesus, bringing mankind into the promised land, into heaven, through the waters of baptism. That inauguration of the sacrament of baptism having been, sp spiritually speaking, um, begun or initiated in the very same place in the Jordan River. So with that, I've kind of, in a foggy way, repeated myself three times. I hope that, you know, three foggy pictures, maybe the equivalent of one semi-intelligible picture. But with that, we've come to the halfway point in our program. So we'll turn to the musical break. And um, if there are any calls, I'll, I'll take them coming out of the break. The number here being 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And then I will continue 
with a uh, discussion of uh, the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River and the presentation. So with that, let's go to our musical break. You're listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Showman, back in a few moments. Hi, welcome back. Uh, we've been discussing the uh, other feasts of the Christmas season, um, the uh, uh, circumcision, epiphany, and now we're on the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. And I am about to go into a description from Anne Catherine Emmerich of um, her vision of what she saw when she um, observed the baptism of Jesus in a vision. But before I do, I, I forgot to mention something. I, I mentioned before the break that um, about twice a year I lead pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And I did want to mention that um, my next one is in May 2020, um, the tail end of May 2020. And um, it has been full, but I did receive one or two cancellations. So there is a spot or two, or maybe a spot or two at the moment. And uh, my next one is in the tail, it's over Thanksgiving of 2020, essentially. It's tail end of November and the very beginning of December of 2020. And that one is, uh, is definitely still open. So if any listener is intrigued by the idea of a very Catholic, but with a little Jewish roots, pilgrimage to the Holy Land, um, if that might be on your bucket list, so to speak, uh, just send me an email at haveroytalk at gmail.com is the easiest email address to use, haveroytalk at gmail.com, and I'll, I'll send you the information. Um, uh, but anyway, with that, let me uh, read the description of... Um, f I'm trying to think of where to start. Um, before I read a description of Jesus being baptized in Jordan, I just want to fill in something from the Old Testament, which is what happened when the Jews crossed over into the Holy Land from their wandering in the desert, from their slavery in Egypt, and crossed the Jordan River. Because I omitted to mention the miracle that is very well known in, in Judaism, but perhaps obviously the Old Testament has a different role in Judaism, um, which is that what happened was when the Israelites reached the uh, shore of the Jordan River, the far shore of the Jordan River, they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went first and you know, began to cross the Jordan River. And as their feet, uh, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, touched the waters of the Jordan River, the Jordan River ceased to flow. It stopped. It was like the crossing of the Red Sea. And the waters piled up um, before the crossing point and drained off after the crossing point into the Dead Sea. The priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant stopped halfway across the Jordan River, uh, standing there, while causing the waters to stop flowing and this wall of water to build up, while the entire nation of Israel, which I believe was 600,000, if I remember the number correctly, crossed over dry shod, just like, you know, they crossed the Red Sea, dry shod into the Promised Land, and then the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant continued and 
cross the Jordan River themselves from their midway point in the middle of the Jordan River. And of course, when they touched the shore on the far side, then the waters of the Jordan River resumed flowing. This is very significant. And let me just point out one particular very Christian and Catholic significance of this. We know that the Blessed Virgin Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant, right? I'm sure we've all heard that expression that the Blessed Virgin Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. Think about this. The, um, when the Ark of the Covenant was in the middle of the Jordan River, the waters of the Jordan River ceased to flow. The Blessed Virgin Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant, the Blessed Virgin Mary was born without original sin. Original sin was like this river that flowed from Adam and Eve through all of their descendants, tainting all of their offspring and their offspring's offspring and so forth for all time, right? It was this river of original sin. But when the Blessed Virgin Mary was conceived, that river of original sin stopped, froze in place, so to speak, to allow the Ark of the New Covenant to be born without original sin. Anyway, it's also a very beautiful Christological picture that, um, you know, that you have the Old Testament Jewish history being a picture of this later, more deeply fulfilled instance of a kind of a parallel miracle. Anyway, so I wanted to introduce that picture of the Ark of the Covenant causing the waters of the Jordan River to cease flowing at exactly the place where Jesus was baptized, and uh, Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant, causing the uh, river of original sin to cease flowing. And of course, we are freed from original sin by the waters of baptism, um, which were inaugurated by Jesus' baptism in that same spot. With that theological introduction, let me just go to the narrative from Anne Catherine Emmerich. It starts with John the Baptist baptizing at that spot before Jesus comes. Je uh, John delivered to his disciples at the Jordan a discourse upon the nearness of the Messiah's baptism. He told them that he had never seen him, but he said, I shall, as a proof of what I say, show unto you the place at which he will receive baptism. Behold, the waters of the Jordan will divide, and from their midst an island will arise. At the same moment I beheld the waters of the river dividing, and on a level with its surface appeared a small white island circular in shape. This happened at the spot over which the children of Israel had crossed the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant, and also at which Elijah had divided the waters with his mantle. Remember when Elijah crossed over before going up to heaven in a fiery chariot, he wrapped his mantle around his arm, struck the waters of the Jordan, and again they ceased to flow, and he walked over dry shod. Um, back to Anne Catherine Emmerich. Wonder seized upon the beholders. They prayed and sang praises. John and his disciples laid great stones in the water. Upon them they placed branches and trees, over which they scattered fine white gravel, thus forming the shore to the island, a bridge from the shore to the island, a bridge beneath which the water could flow. They then planted twelve small trees around the island, 
connecting their upper branches in such a way as to form a kind of latticed arbor. The new island, the spot upon which the ark at the passage through the Jordan rested, appeared to be rocky and the bed of the river deeper than in Joshua's time. I saw that the Jordan was very much swollen when Joshua led the Israelites through it. The Ark of the Covenant was borne far ahead of the people. Among the twelve carriers and attendants were Joshua and Caleb. When they arrived at the Jordan, the forepart of the Ark, which was usually borne by two, was now taken charge of by one alone while the others supported the rear. As soon as the leader set the foot of the Ark in the river, the rushing waters instantly stood still, rose up like galleries on either side, and continued rising and swelling until like a mountain they could be seen far away in the region of the city of Zarthan. They flowed toward the Dead Sea, leaving the bed of the river such that the carriers bore the ark over dry shod. The Israelites crossed the river in the same way, but at some distance from the ark and further down the river. The Ark of the Covenant was borne by the Levites far into the riverbed to a spot upon which were four square blood-red stones arranged in order. On either side lay two rows of triangular stones, six in number. The twelve Levites set down the Ark of the Covenant on the four central stones and stepped six to the right, six to the left, on the twelve triangular stones lying near. When John uh, was informed of Jesus' approach, he became so inflamed with ardent love for Jesus that he grew almost impatient at his not proclaiming himself the Messiah openly and in unmistakable terms. When John baptized his disciples, he received the assurance of the nearness of the Messiah. He saw a cloud of light hovering over them and had a vision of Jesus surrounded by all of his disciples. From that moment, John became unspeakably joyous and expectant, constantly glancing into the distance to see whether or not the Lord was yet in sight. It was morning twilight when, on the road near the place, Jesus caught up with a crowd of people who were also going to the baptism place, and he walked on with them. They did not know him, but they could not keep their eyes off of Jesus, for there was something about him very remarkable. When they reached the end of their journey, it was morning. A crowd more numerous than usual was assembled, to whom John was, with great animation, preaching of the nearness of the Messiah and of penance, proclaiming at the same time that the moment was approaching for him, John, to retire from his office of teacher. Jesus was standing in the throng of listeners. John felt his presence. He saw him also, and that fired him with zeal and filled his heart with joy. But he did not, on that account, interrupt his discourse. And when he had finished, he began to baptize. He had already baptized very many, and it was drawing on to ten o'clock, when Jesus in his turn came down among the aspirants to the pool of baptism. John bowed low before him, saying, I ought to be baptized by thee, and thou comest to me? Jesus answered, Suffice it, Suffer it now to be so, for it becometh us to fulfill all justice, that thou baptize me, and I be baptized by thee. Jesus also 
said, Thou shalt receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of blood. Then John begged him to follow him to the island. The Savior now went with John and his two disciples, Andrew and Saturnin. They crossed the bridge to the island and into a little tent that close to the eastern edge of the baptismal well had been erected for the purpose of robing and disrobing. The disciples followed the Lord to the island, but at the far end of the bridge the people stood on the shore in great crowds. Jesus entered the tent and there laid off first his mantle and girdle, then a narrow woolen garment which was closed by laces in front, then by a woolen strip which he wore around his neck and crossed over the breast, and which he was accustomed to wind around his head at night and in stormy weather. Retaining his brown woven undergarment, he stepped forth and descended to the margin of the well, where he drew the garment over, off over his head. About his loins was fastened a broad linen band, which is also wound around each leg for about half a foot. Saturnin received the garments of the Lord as he disrobed, and handed them to Lazarus, who was standing on the edge of the island. And now Jesus descended into the well and stood in the water up to his breast. On the southern side of the well stood John, floating, in, holding in his hand a shell with a perforated margin through which the water flowed in three streams. He stooped, filling, filled the shell, and then poured the water in three streams over the head of the Lord, one on the back of his head, one in the middle, and the third over the forepart of the head and on his face. I do not now clearly remember John's words when baptizing, baptizing Jesus, but they were something like the following. May Yahweh, through the ministry of his cherubim and seraphim, pour out his blessing over thee with wisdom, understanding, and strength. I cannot say for certain whether these three words were really those that I heard, but I know that they were expressive of three gifts for the mind, the soul, and the body, respectively. In them was contained all that was needed to convert every creature, renewed in mind, in soul, and in body, to the Lord. When Jesus ascended from the depths of the baptismal well, Andrew and Saturnin threw about him a large linen cloth with which he dried his person. They then put on him a long white baptismal robe. This part of the ceremony over, they were just about mounting the steps when the voice of God came over Jesus, who is still standing alone and in prayer upon the stone. There came from heaven a great rushing wind like thunder. Everyone trembled and look up, looked up. A cloud of white light descended, and I saw over Jesus a winged figure of light, as if flowing over him like a stream. The heavens opened. I beheld an apparition of the Heavenly Father in the figure in which he is usually depicted, and in a voice of thunder I heard the words, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was perfectly transparent, entirely penetrated by light. One could scarcely look at him. I saw angels around him. But off at some distance on the waters of the Jordan, I saw Satan, a dark black figure, as if in a cloud, 
and myriads of horrible black reptiles and vermin swarming around him. It was as if all the wickedness, all the sins, all the poison of the whole region took a visible form at the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and fled into that dark figure as into their original source. The sight was abominable, but it served to heighten the effect of the indescribable splendor and joy and brilliancy spread over the Lord and the whole island. The sacred baptismal well sparkled and glanced. Foundations and margin and waters became pools of living light. One could see the four stones that had once supported the Ark of the Covenant shining beneath the waters as if in exaltation, and on the twelve around the well, those upon which the Levites had stood, appeared angels bending in adoration, for the Spirit of God had before all mankind render testimony to the living foundation, to the precious chosen cornerstone of the church, around whom we, as so many living stones, must build up a spiritual edifice, a holy priesthood, that thereby we may offer an acceptable spiritual sacrifice to God through his beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased. Well, that's where I'm going to end the reading from Anne Catherine Emmerich. I can't imagine a better, more compelling picture of the baptism in the Jordan and in its role as a transfiguration, let's say, as a transformation between Judaism and the Catholic Church. Um, the Judaism symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant and the crossing of the Jewish people into the Promised Land, and of course the Catholic Church um, made real, made manifest by the uh, baptism of Jesus, inaugurating this, inaugurating the sacrament of baptism, and the um, Blessed Virgin Mary, the Ark of the True Covenant our passage as Christians into the true Holy Land through baptism in the very same place. So with that, we've come to the end of our time together. Um, I hope you all have a very blessed and prayerful celebration of the baptism of the Lord tomorrow and a, a very rich continuation of the Christmas season until the Feast of the Presentation and my discussion of the Presentation and the Feast of the Presentation and the Purification of Mary according to Jewish ritual and the Presentation of the Infant Jesus in the Temple according to Jewish ritual will have to wait until one of the subsequent shows between now and the Presentation. So with that, this is Roy Showman saying goodbye. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. And it's time to say bye for now. I hope you join us again, same time, same place, next week for Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. This is Roy Showman again saying bye for now. Hey, Roy, I'll see you next time. Sounds, Sounds good. good. God bless. Yeah, bye. <laughs>